Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O Line Media presents Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we will examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and comment um, um, for us on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, Apple, Spotify, the whole range. So let's jump into it. You know, oftentimes we talk about experts and the word expert is thrown around repeatedly. Well, you know what? I have a guest today who is an authentic expert, not in just one area or two areas. I mean, he's got more titles and expertise areas in his back pocket than most of us will ever have in a lifetime. My special guest today, um, and I would like to say a dear friend, and who was one of the first persons who believed in my abilities to do this work, Dr. Earl G. Southers. Doc, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure. Thank you for the accolades. I need to make sure you're with me everywhere I go when I'm speaking to do that intro, because I can't beat that. You're too kind. Oh, listen, you know what? Um, We're going to start out being kind, because, you know, some of these questions are going to get tough near the end. So, you know, we try to butter up our guests a little bit, soften them up, reel them in for a second, and then boom, next thing you know, we're dropping some mics. So, so Doc, you know what? Um, with your schedule, it has been extremely difficult to try and plan uh, this podcast, but you know what? You committed to it. Um, you committed when you were out of the country. You committed when you first uh, got your new position um, as an LAPD commissioner or commissioner, part of the commission. But so what I'm going to do is let our audience know a little bit about you. Um, so I've got some notes here that talk about your your educational background. Um, you've got like USC and Brown, both in your academic um, portfolio here. Talk to me a little bit about your academic and educational endeavors and how that might have led you to the positions that you've held over the decades. And I'm saying decades well, off. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, again, thank you, Doc, for having me on your show. Um, I'm one of your biggest fans, as you know. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess it wouldn't surprise your audience to know that my parents were educators. Uh, and I always have to say this, too. My mom was the first African-American woman to graduate from the Rutgers School of Pharmacy. She was the first person in her family to get a degree. She wound up with two graduate degrees, my father with one. So I had big shoes to fill and big shoulders to stand on when it came to education. Uh, I'm probably going to say some things that you don't know about me as it relates to education because I went to Brown. I was a pre-med major and I left Brown and went to med school. No. And I left medical school to travel to California um, and become a police officer. So uh, I'll be quite frank. Um, my mom was not thrilled with that. 
uh, and didn't talk to me for about six months. <laughs> but finally, she always, my parents always supported me and, and they supported me. And through the Santa Monica Police Department, then on to the FBI, and they were both at graduation at Quantico and very proud. And, and I've been able to go through that career path where I finally redeemed myself in getting my master's degree and years later getting my doctorate. So she did get her doctor, but she didn't get her orthopedic surgeon she thought she was going to get. God bless her. Wait a minute. So I need to, what, what medical school are you comfortable talking about? What med school were you attending or thinking about attending? Absolutely. I was at the College of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, which was Rutgers, uh, her alma mater in Newark, about 10 miles from where I grew up in New Jersey. And I got there, went through the summer program, started the fall semester at Gross Anatomy, and I just said, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. After four years of pre-med and, you know, living through chemistry, bio, physics, and math and preparing myself. And the funny thing is, my colleagues, mostly my frat brothers, are all surgeons now. When we get together, I want to talk about what they're doing. They want to talk about counterterrorism and my exploits as an undercover FBI agent. So... It's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? I saw you slid that in there, too. Um, my fraternity brothers, right? Part of the Divine Nine. Um, you Go ahead. I see you throwing up those fingers, right? Upward and onward, right? Um, he's got his own six for, for those of you listening to it. So uh, definitely an alpha man. And, and here's the thing. Um, we didn't know the, we had these connections over all these years until recently uh, right. when we both discovered that my husband attended Brown um, as well, and that my husband right. is an alpha. And we find that out because I see you were part of the Brown reunion crew, and you are a social Absolutely. media mongrel. Um, so, I, you know, you may need me for the intros. I need you, though, for your social media capabilities because uh, you are out there doing it and doing it well. Well, thank you. It was a great time. It was our 45th reunion, and I really had a really good time. I wish I was going to get back for the Black uh, student reunion this fall, but unfortunately, my schedule won't allow. But I enjoyed myself. I'm looking forward to the 50th. Wonderful. So your educational um, endeavors have taken you places that most people can only dream of. Um, you started out with Santa Monica. Um, but you skipped, there was um, other places that you were. You were at the FBI, and then you were also at the Los Angeles, um, basically transportation, right, for individuals who don't know that. And you rose up to assistant chief. I did. I was at the uh, LAX Airport Police Department. I was assistant chief there responsible for Homeland Security and Intelligence. It's the largest airport police department in the world. And the only airport police department that has its own on-site bomb squad. We had our own on-site Coast Guard station. I had 68 canines that were able to detect everything from food to explosives. Uh, an emergency services unit, which was SWAT. And a dignitary protection unit that handled presidents, prime ministers, and others. It is the number one point of origin, point of destination airport in the world. So it's not the busiest, but it is quite busy. And is that where you um, found your interest? I mean, you are known as an expert in homegrown violent extremism. Is that where that first was peaked? Um, I, I'm surely it wasn't at OCHEM when you were in med school. Or maybe no. it was. Um, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, actually, it was peaked 
before that time, uh, because I was at the time I was the airport, I was a doctoral student and I had started exploring domestic terrorism, violent extremism. I called it HVE, uh, which now is a very common acronym. I'm not saying I invented it, but it was the title for my doctorate. And I used that time to really leverage my place at the airport, leverage the fact that we were coming off of 9-11. And I had not forgotten the things that happened in 1995 at the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City. I had not forgotten the fact that we had a growing homegrown threat here. And that year, Doc, was when I was at the airport, 2009, was the year that the DHS report came out about right-wing extremism, because I happened to be the president's nominee at the time, and had the TSA, and had I had any opportunity to warn Secretary Napolitano, I would have said that report, labeled as it is, is going to be really problematic, and it was. And that report, unfortunately, foretold things happening then and things happening now. And, and, and what's so interesting about this is, right, being on the forefront of these curves and being able to see what's coming down the pike, particularly, um, this is in 2009, right? We have President Obama, which is probably spiking some of the ideologies around extremism, particularly internally. Um, and when I say that, I'm talking about in the United States, right? We're always worried about um, our foreign terrorists. And we've always been really soft about the ideas of domestic terrorism, the things that could occur here. And as a matter of fact, in 2023, we still don't have any particular laws to charge people or individuals with domestic terrorism. Let me share a couple of things. Let me go back to what you said about President Obama. Um, again, you know, I'm, I'm a professor at heart. So I always say, you know, without data, you're just somebody with an opinion. As W. Edwards Deming said, who's a famous data scientist, so President Obama, when he came into office, if you don't know, he got four times the number of threats that his predecessor, President Bush, got. If you look at trends and patterns over Democratic and Republican administrations in this country, extremist groups on the right and militias peaked under President Clinton and President Obama. They decreased during Republican administrations. What was really scary was when Trump became president, that decrease in the right wing and the militias continued to go up. You do have statutes under United States Code Title 18 that can be used to prosecute on domestic terrorism. In fact, my good friend, Michael German, who's also a former FBI agent and an expert in this space, we do have those tools available, although they've never been used. So while we don't need new laws, we do need new focus and new political will to go after these people, as we've seen recently with the people that are being charged in the insurrection on January 6th. So, so if we can push this a little further, the, what do you believe is the hesitant, hesitancy um, to using the current laws that are on the book? And then possibly, you know, just like we have other laws, you know, the Affordable Care Act that people know it is Obamacare. If there is a current law that exists that we could link to and charge under domestic terrorism, why haven't we branded it and marketed it in a way that would make the community feel 
safer and that the United States would be willing to leverage that? So it's actually a two-part question um, for us, because I believe there's got to be some, as you said, political will. There's probably some other things that are going on, too, um, that are causing political individuals to pause when it comes to utilizing the tools that we have. Well, it's a great question, and it's quite simple. It's just pure denial. And I said this years ago when I wrote my book, you've got this whole notion in the United States of otherism. We tend to coalesce and rally when someone else is doing something, another religion, another nationality, another ethnicity. We rally. I mean, you couldn't buy an American flag on September the 12th, 2001, because everybody was an American. When, when now we're looking at, we're looking in the mirror, when we are literally looking at this threat, people don't want to want to hear about that. They do not want to believe that the violent extremist, the domestic terrorist, is the person next door. And so there's always been this push with regards to particularly counterterrorism efforts to focus on the external international threat and, if you will, decrease the importance or actually the uh, real challenges and danger of the homegrown threat because that homegrown threat is us. And we were always very comfortable looking at Africa, looking at Europe, looking at Asia, watching their people born in their countries do it. But Americans, we don't do that. I mean, if you look at the attacks we had in London in 2005, that second wave, those guys were all Brits. If you look at the attacks in Madrid, those guys were all Spaniards. Why should we be any different? So now we have to come to the grips with the realities of the fact that we are no different. We can be radicalized, we can be energized, and we can be violent, and we are. And so therein lies the real reason you're not seeing these laws being applied. Therein, in fact, lies the reason that every time someone brings us up, we pivot to a threat that has nothing to do with this country because it's external, but we're comfortable with it. You know what? You said something extremely important here um, that brings us to this concept of American exceptionalism, and which has even brought us to this modern-day moment um, that we find ourselves in. And I remember when Christopher Ray was testifying and saying very specifically the mo- the 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 highest threat to the United States right now is domestic terrorism. And that, even that was poo-poo, right? And the the um, a lot of the communities pushed back on that and now has said that he's been weaponized by the Democrats in um, Congress, although he is a Republican appointee, right? It was highly regarded as when he replaced Comey as being an FBI, as being a man's man of FBI, you know what I mean? Like straight shooter, no pun intended. Um, but you know, that he really was the man for the moment after what they believed was Comey, who they thought was a traitor. So when he's saying it, that it's in our own backyard, then why are we still in denialism? Well, that's a really good question because as you're saying this, you're talking about a man who's director of an agency that now has been labeled the deep state because they don't want to even accept what he's saying because it's not part of the narrative. So they've decided now that the FBI is some rogue organization that's been taken over by the left. And so it's all about denying data when it stares you in the face. And 
as a professor and yourself as an academic, it's really challenging to have people look at you and not accept the fact that the earth is not flat <laughs> or that things aren't the way that they are. But that's where we are. And so, you know, I've always said radicalization is nothing more than people identifying, embracing, and engaging in furthering extremist behavior. Americans can be radicalized. Americans are radicalized. And so it's very, very challenging now. Again, if you go back to 2009 and that report from DHS, when we started to suggest that returning veterans might be recruited by these organizations, they are. That police officers might be radicalized and extremists, they are. As long as we're talking about human beings, there is no American exceptionalism. We are subject to the same forces that have embraced populations around the world. And the sooner we can understand that, the sooner we can come to work together on how to address it. So you, you said something really important here, particularly I want to bring us to the um, the law enforcement component of this, right? A lot of um, departments recruit former military. They give them veterans preference points. Um, they do give them additional benefits. They give them privileges on testing and things of that nature, preferential hiring, et cetera. Um, and one of the things that we did learn very early on um, is that in 2009, and then we saw it again in 2020, um, in 2021, and then um, we're seeing it now um, when the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, a lot of military and police officers were involved in those crowds. Um, there were military and police officers actually in Charlottesville in 2017 under the Unite the Right, and some have been fired. You know, they're believing in these ideologies of, of white supremacy, um, systems of patriarchy, etc. Talk to me then about, one, how do we root them out? And two, did that influence the work? I mean, you've done some seminal work around the Lewis Registry. Um, and I, I would be remiss if I did not anchor us at some point in that kind of work. So can you talk to me about what you were seeing and why that was so important and connect that back to um, the Lewis Registry and tell our audience what that is? Of course. And, and so what I will do is say, you know that we had to rename the registry. It's now the Police Misconduct Registry. But originally it was the Lewis Registry, which was the law enforcement work inquiry system named after John Lewis. But let me go back to your original question about the military. They were easy people to recruit and to target because they had skill sets that were desirable by these extremist organizations. And so that was the, the reason that was happening. Um, the thing about law enforcement, and we do the same things here, obviously, at LAPD. We have a great program called SkillBridge. We can actually take active duty military and while they're in the last 18 months of their career, start to transition them into the academy. If for no other reason, I tell you why I like them, other than their service to our country. They're disciplined. That's one element of their lives that we don't have to worry about. You know, we're in a generation, Doc, where people want to work at home in their pajamas. And, and so it's really challenging to try to recruit people to a profession that you have to go to work every day in person. You might get wet. You might get cold. Um, it, it, those things are really challenging today. But having said that, we have the same issue with people now getting recruited, coming 
into organizations and coming into contact with organizations that try to radicalize them. Uh, we see it in the military. And I will say this, and I've often said this about not just law enforcement agencies, but organizations in general. There's three things I've always believed. Personnel will mirror the behaviors of their leader. They will do what they believe they will be tolerated. And in organizations who investigate themselves rarely find anything wrong. So what organizations am I describing? The United States military and police departments. And so there you have part of the problem. We don't want to look in that mirror. So again, the denial starts to kick in. The police misconduct registry, we found it because we started to see what we always knew was that police officers were not immune to the forces of recruitment to extremist organizations, which often can lead to police misconduct, uses of force, and things like that. This registry collected public information about officers who have been terminated for misconduct. And let me take a moment to shine a light on you because of the characteristics we had to make someone eligible for that registry. We took a page out of your book to include police officers who had been embracing extremist organizations. And that was very successful. What we did is we put that registry together because we wanted to make sure the American people could hold the agencies in their neighborhoods accountable for not hiring someone who had been fired for misconduct someplace else. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Back to data. Yale did a study that officers who have been fired for misconduct when hired again, not only get in trouble, but get in worse trouble than the first time. The challenge with this, as a former chief yourself, you know how hard it is to fire a police officer. And in fact, when you fire a police officer, 21% of them get reinstated through appeal. So when an officer's been fired, let me just say this very clearly, they need to stay fired. They need to move on to another profession where they don't have the authority to take someone else's life they don't have the authority to detain someone or, or, if you will, arrest someone. They need to move on. So what we wanted to do was to make sure we could make available, and we still do, to departments across the country, a database that has those officers in it so they are not rehired by an agency unknowingly, having been fired from misconduct someplace else. So, so I hear what you say unknowingly, right? But let's be honest about this conversation. When the officer typically doesn't look like yourself or myself, and it is a white male, how often do they knowingly, in spite of, will hire that person? Part of a good old boy systems. Oh, there, there's a friend. Oh, the chief there, she was radical. She's a lefty. She's a hudafugger. Um, you know, Dr. Southers, he just hates the police, right? Like, there's all these reasons. Um, in a case in point, you know, I attempted to have seven officers decertified in Charlottesville. Very public, made sure that all of my stuff was in open source so that they could be added to 
your database and your registry, right? For police misconduct so that we could stop the hopscotching or hopscotching of officers from place to place to place, particularly for misconduct or who were allowed to resign in lieu of termination. But what's so interesting is Virginia has a new rule that says if you hire an officer, you must look at their personnel jacket from the previous organization. You must physically get their personnel jacket. I have had two of the seven officers that I terminated, their jackets examined, the reasons they were terminated, and they were still hired by the neighboring agencies. Why? Because they're like, oh, they're good guys. They're good individuals. They're good persons. And you know what? That chief was the problem. So what do we do well, with that? It's it's interesting you should say that. Um, I'm not surprised, disappointed, but not surprised. Uh, I often say this to people and they don't like it. I have no problem with legacies when it comes to law enforcement. There are legacies in academic institutions. My brother went to Brown. My nephew went to Brown. Uh, so I often will ask officers who have this challenge with the AA word I'm going to give you in a moment, where I say, well, what did your parents do? Well, they're both cops. Well, what about your grandparents? Well, they were police officers. I go, that's affirmative action. Okay. I mean, affirmative action to me is not lowering standards. It's not about color. It's not about gender. It's about access. You had access. Okay. So these officers you fired, they have access because somebody knew they were officers before and decided they're okay. So that's a real challenge. And it's interesting you used to say too, again, on who's being looked at and who's not. Uh, we do have police officer bill of rights across the country that don't allow for people to look at those jackets. As you mentioned also, they resign in lieu of misconduct or in, I'm sorry, they resign in lieu of firing. That's a problem. 21% get rehired after they get fired. So I'm focused on that group out there that has been fired. And now you have states, and we won't mention them, who are actually actively recruiting officers who've been fired, particularly in California. Because with all due respect to the other 49 states, we do have exceptional officers here. We have incredible academies here. And they said, if you can't work in your state because you've been fired, we'll take you on. So it's worse than we think. They are knowingly hiring people who've been fired because they don't have to put them in the academy. They can lateral them over and it works for them financially. It works for them t operationally and they have a new job. And you're exactly right. It's all about the dollars. It is all about the dollars. I just was in a conversation today with a reporter today about the decertification of my officers and saying, hey, listen, none of them were decertified. Not a single one did the state decertify. And if a chief is asking you to decertify, you think you could get it done. And they stayed fired. Um, one of the points that I was in insistent on is every case, even if the officer resigned in the middle of the investigation or during the termination process, we finished the case to the end. Like I terminated them regardless. And I don't care what their resignation letter says. I did. And I'm like, I don't have to accept your resignation letter. You can put it out there all you want to. Um, but I'm going to finish the, the process because the people deserve a full and complete account 
of the type of misconduct that is occurring out in the um, out in your communities, right? So if you intentionally hire them, but you're right, not only do they get rehired with better benefits, they often get sign-on bonuses. And so they're doing sign-off bonuses. They're giving a lateral pay and giving them seniority. So when they move them over, they're saying, hey, we'll pay you at the same year as our 10-year officer if you've got 10 years, even though you don't have 10 years invested in the entire system. So how does then the LAPD commission in which you are, are have you been bumped up to president or are you just, are you, are you vice president? Like, what, what are you, Grand Poobah now? Which one is it? I am the president now. So, um, yeah. Yes, you just got sworn in as the president. I know you got. I thought you got bumped. I I did. I got. I I'm the president, and the running joke now because obviously here at USC, the chief of the Department of Public Safety, that chief, she reports to me. So when I tell someone, I spoke to the chief this morning, they will laugh and say, "Which one?" Um, because because <laughs> is it is it Chief Moore or is it Chief Hill? Sometimes it's both of them. But I'm lucky to have two incredible chiefs um, that I have a great working relationship with and I can be candid and I am candid and we hopefully can get some things done. So what is the role of the the commission? Uh, for those who don't know, what does the commission do? Is it similar to an oversight body, a civilian review body or like COPA that they have in Chicago? What is your role? I mean, it's a cool title. Um, and, you know, one of my favorite mayors, uh, Aaron Bass, former congressional person, um, is the one who selected you and appointed you to the commission. Uh, what do you do? and Why is that important to us? Well, as you were mentioning what commissions do across the country, keep going because we do all of those things. We are an oversight body. We manage the department. The chief reports to us. We are responsible for their spending. We're responsible for reviewing reports. We sit on all matters of what we call categorical uses of force and adjudicate them. Um, we don't issue or recommend on discipline, but we do adjudicate those cases with regards to whether they're in policy or whether they're not. So it is a, uh, a body of five that's been in place for over a hundred years. And it's, it, we meet every, every week. Uh, people are really engaged. Um, I would be I'll, sell you, I'll say this to you. I took this on because Congress member Bass did call me uh, knowing that I, what I do as an associate senior vice president at USC. And she said, I know you'll never leave there. I know you have a lot of hours that you work there. But she said, <laughs> the magic words, Doc, she said, I need you. Ooh. And I, looked, I said to her, you had me at hello. So, so here we are. Um, and I'm, I'm very pleased, but I'll just say this to you. They advertise that on the website, you'll see that commissioners, you know, it's voluntary. They work 25 to 50 hours a week. That 25 to 50 hours is extremely accurate with regards to how much time we put in. But I'm enjoying it because last thing I'll say is the beauty of this is the number of officers that I know over the last 40 years and the number of officers I see at headquarters that sat in my classroom as graduate students who I know them, they trust me, and as they jokingly will say about me when they see me in the station to other officers, he doesn't need to go on a ride along. He knows what we do. I said so that makes me feel really good. So how about then, so, you know, this is a higher level where there's the five of you who do this. Um, 
there have been these oversight bodies that really have been on the rise uh, since the public execution of George Floyd and the conviction of Derek Chauvin. Um, but not everybody's going to have access to an amazing mayor um, who would have me on hello as well. Um, but how does an everyday citizen, right, engage and participate in that entire governing accountability oversight um, portion of it, right? Because the, the police are accountable to all of us um, who are part of the citizenry, right? We literally give over our power to them and, and say, we won't police ourselves, we'll give it to you. But we don't all get to sit in those spaces. So what would you recommend for an everyday person to engage, um, to move some of these ideas forward, but just to be engaged in the oversight and accountability um, aspect of policing? That's a, that's a really good question, Doc, but I'll tell you this. We don't have to tell the citizens of L.A. how to be engaged in the police commission because they are engaged. Uh, they come to our meetings every Tuesday. They will write us. They will participate in public comment. Uh, they know that we also, have, we also have an office of the inspector general that does investigations as well. Uh, I'm going to say this to you, too, because I have to. Mayor Bass has a very comprehensive approach to public safety. So in addition to me and the commission, and by the way, the other African-American male on the commission is an alpha, uh, <laughs> and her deputy mayor, her deputy, oh, I'm not done. Her deputy mayor of public safety, Brian Williams, he's an alpha, um, but she also has a deputy mayor of community safety, Karen Lane. And so the three of us are basically the law enforcement and public safety leadership team for her administration. We engage, obviously, the department. We engage the communities they serve on a very regular basis to receive input, to listen. They hold us accountable for things being implemented. There are community police advisory boards assigned to all 21 divisions of LAPD, uh, and, and they meet monthly as well in terms of engaging with the department. There's a community safety partnership being led by Deputy Chief Imada Tingridis, and you may like this. This came about because of my dear friend and yours too, Connie Rice. Uh, Connie put this together many years ago. These officers, I know you know what a senior lead program is where an officer is assigned to a neighborhood. These officers are part of a, a bureau that are assigned not just to a neighborhood, but they commit to a five-year tour of duty before leaving that neighborhood. And it's working rather well. Uh, they are in areas that are particularly challenged by, by gang violence. And so the mayor's approach to this is very comprehensive. You know her priority is unhoused and homeless individuals. You can't have that as a priority and not have the public safety infrastructure in place. So that's how we all work together but there are numerous opportunities for people in the city to be engaged with us. And believe me, they take every opportunity to do that. You know what? I, I appreciate that because most people just don't know. They want to do something. They just don't know how to access the systems, just like you said before, because these aren't systems that we built. If you're part of an other group, these aren't systems that you've built, so you do not have access to the systems at hand. So... One of the things I'm going to ask you is because 
you are all when I say you are all over the place, um, admirably so. Um, during one of our our text messages, I'm trying to make sure you got you on the show. You said, "Hey, listen, this is my quiet time at 4 a.m. when you get up to exercise, or at 5 a.m. when you get up to exercise." Um, I think that's ungodly on all points. Just for the record, there should be nobody doing anything like exercise at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. Um, but what? But what I'm going to talk to you about is. So why do you still still do this work? I mean, you've been in this for a very long time, and you could retire from one of your six jobs. Like you could retire from one of them. What keeps you here? That's a. I, I really appreciate that question. And by the way, old habits die hard. Thirty years ago, when I was on SWAT, my team was in the gym at four thirty. So this is pretty easy. Um, but I'll tell you, Rochelle. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the people before me who did the hard things. You know, I have in my office the photo of Ray Hood and Vivian Malone when they walked into the University of Alabama when the school was desegregated. That's why I'm sitting in Bovard in the administration building of the University of Southern California. So when I think about the police commission and the first African-American officer was a enslaved person from Ohio who came to California and became a police officer. That's why I'm able to be on the commission. So as people have often said to me, you know, you got a lot of jobs. I go, no, I don't have a job. I have a responsibility and there's a difference. And so that's why I do this. And the other reason, I'm just going to be really candid with you. If I weren't having fun, I wouldn't do this because I've never had a job in my life. I've always had fun. So the only thing that's hard for me, and it is definitely a character flaw, is I don't know how to say no. So I just roll with it. And as long as I can contribute, as long as I'm being a positive influence, I'm going to keep doing this. I don't look forward to playing shuffleboard. That's not how I, I'm how I'm built. So I'm going to keep doing this as long as long as I can. I'm looking forward to the Olympics in 28, and we keep moving. You know what that that is inspirational. Um, I just for the record, I ran our SWAT team in Pittsburgh, and um, I was the only uh, female at the time. And so um, when they were in the gym, I was not uh, intentionally not um, in the gym at those point in time, but. the one thing that kept going in my head is I often say to our officers in the department that I oversaw is that your inheritance doesn't have to be your legacy. What would your legacy look like? You've inherited a lot. What could your legacy look like? I hope my legacy looks like what I've embraced as it relates to standing on the shoulders of giants, that somebody in the the countless people they may recall doing certain things, somebody might say, you know, he affected me, even if I didn't know them, but I'm doing this because of what he did. And there are a lot of people that I say that about. There are former African-American police commissioners who I've never met who've passed on. Um, There are former African-American FBI agents who I never met, but I'm here because of them. The numerous professors I've met throughout my career who gave me the opportunity to be sitting here as associate senior vice president 
one of the largest major research universities in the country. So I hope my legacy is one of them seeing me as a maybe a small bit of those shoulders that they stand on, and it pushes them to want to do those things going forward. You know what? I, I don't know how to better end than on that note. Um, you've had lots of successes, and as you said, you can trace those back to um, individuals. You could not be in the space that you're in. Um, oh, but the, I do, you know what, out of the clear blue, I don't know if the audience knows this, you know, although they know you were appointed to a position by uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, um, you know, I'm fangirling over here uh, because, again, the circles that you run in based on the work that you do um, between the governor, um, you know, I jokingly say my boo, Bayrock, um, Obama, right? You, you know, know, know these people. And you know what? Um, it's because of your passion and your gift and your um, talent for wanting to do what is right um, and for doing it for communities. Your passion to serve is like none other I have ever seen. And I am just proud to, to know you and to call you friend. I want to give a huge thank you um, as our guest, Dr. Earl Southers. And if there's any last words of wisdom you want to give this audience, I'm sure they would love to hear some sort of alpha pluralism um, that has come out. Uh, you have repped them well on this show today. Well, thank you. You are, you are much too kind. Um, I'm very, very blessed to be here. And I know I said this when we started our conversation. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for my parents. They were always there for me. They always pushed me. But, you know, I got to go back to my days at Brown when Gil Scott Heron used to come through town. And I'm dating myself now, but, you know, he said something that I always hold dear. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. That's where I am. Thank you. Dr. Earl Southers is a force to be reckoned with. As I think about this end of shift report and the discussion that we had, the lively discussion we had, we have a person who has been ringing the bells for a decade or more about, you know, homegrown violent extremism. And if the threat looked like a black person or a brown person, we would have taken that extremely seriously in the United States. The threat of someone um, who might do damage to the United States in terms of, you know, the destructions that we saw in the Oklahoma City bombing or any of those other ones. Like, we knew back then that we had these issues, particularly in military and in law enforcement, and we always wanted them to be a one-off or a lone wolf because it was happening within the borders of the United States. And when we don't pay attention... Because who we believe can be a threat, we are likely to be taken down from inside. And that was reflective even in the Jan 6 Capitol uprising, the riots that were there. We were not prepared for the insider threat because the people who were attacking did not look like the people we have always labeled as violent, as extremists as those individuals um, who could bring harm to our government and to our police department. 
And for that failure, we have paid for that over and over and over again. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Earl Southers, and to our audience. Thank you for listening, and please tell someone about the show. And don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I am 1042 on this one. Catch you next week. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Executive producers Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. Follow the Mean O Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O Line Media. Get the Mean O Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean O Line Media production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.